And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Amen. So the whole point of the argument that we just heard read from the writer of Hebrews is to warn us, fear the Son and don't drift away from salvation found in His righteousness. Fear the Son and don't drift away from salvation found in His righteousness. What we're going to see is that God uses means in our lives to fulfill the promise that for true believers, he'll persevere us to the end. So three points. First, the son's credentials. That's the portion in chapter one. Second, the son's command. Chapter two, verses one through three. And then third, the message confirmed. Chapters two, verses three and four. So the Hebrews writer builds his case that Jesus' message of salvation by faith is far greater than what the angels had previously declared the law. Jesus' qualifications as the Son of God surpass even the greatness and the glory of the angels. So we should fear falling away from his message far more even than the death that comes from breaking the law. That's the penalty for breaking the law. Jesus' resume is better, his power is greater, and his authority is higher than the angels. So we should listen and obey. So our first point, the son's credentials. It addresses why we should listen to Jesus, because simply he has a stacked resume. Last week, Pastor Scott took us through verses 1 through 4, where the Hebrews writer starts by showing us that Jesus is God's final messenger of salvation. He is the final revelation of God. He is the Son of God, and his resume highlights four supreme qualifications, all marked out in those four verses. First, his equality with God. He has authority and preeminence over all things. He is the heir of all things. He created the world by the universe. He created the world and upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. I, I didn't exactly articulate that clearly into four to four. Uh, points, but quickly, he's the heir of all things, verse 2. He created the world, verse 2 and 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3, and he made purification for sins, verses 3 and 4. That's Jesus's, that's sort of the qualification section at the top of Jesus' resume. 
So in other words, Jesus is the son, he's the creator and sustainer, and he is God. He rules with all authority because he completed the work of salvation for his people. So his job performance bears out all of those qualifications. His work testifies to the superiority of his name being greater than the angels, and that's because he rose from the dead. He paid the sacrifice to pay the penalty of the sins of anyone who would repent and turn from their sins. And he rose in victory over death to confirm that salvation. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he was coronated as king. And it elevated his human nature to an even more glorious status than the angels. And it declared that salvation in Christ had been completed. So now anyone, anywhere in the world can call upon Jesus' name and, be, and have their sins forgiven by faith alone in his righteousness that he accomplished for them. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's the gospel. And that is what Jesus did for us. So from chapter 1, verse 5, through the rest of chapter 1, the writer is simply going to provide proof of those qualification statements we read in verses 1 through 4. He's going to use the Hebrew scriptures to do so. So remember, Hebrews is addressed to predominantly Jewish audience, a congregation of Jewish Christians, and so the writer's aim is to convince them through the Bible that they had at the time, that all of the Old Testament and all of the promises he's going to quote are all about Jesus. So the Old Testament prophesies specifically Jesus' superiority over angels. This qualifies him to reveal a more binding and a better revelation than they declared when God gave the law. And they were the mediators of that revelation. So look down with me again at verses, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So the first three quotations in this section are from the Psalms, and they establish Jesus' credentials as, and his inheritance as the heir to God's throne. Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Lord, Yahweh, declares his son, and if you read Psalm 2, it's actually an announcement of wrath against his enemies, all who would reject the son's rule. God establishes his king on Zion's hill, and his begotten, his, 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 his heir, his son, his king, is his begotten son. But he's not begotten through means of biological procreation, but as a declaration of the Son's inheritance and His reign over all of the world. By the way, when the passage mentions the title firstborn in verse 6, that's also not a statement about 
the biological birth order, but it's a statement about Jesus being the heir to the universe, the heir to authority and rule that God owns. The Son claims authority from the Father to judge God's enemies. So Psalm 2 warns us that he will crush his enemies like a potter's vessel. Do you feel the warning this morning? There's two ways to respond to the coronated king. Either seek salvation in him or be crushed as his enemy under his judgment. All who submit to the Son by faith are promised refuge in him. And he will sweetly offer forgiveness and communion with him. But God will not be mocked. Jesus' ruling authority as, as son also means that if we reject his rule, if we persist in sin, if we excuse sin, if we minimize sin, if we justify ourselves in our own righteousness, if that's our path, we can be, be assured that he'll crush us like, a, like brittle clay in hell forever. That's because his authority as begotten son demands it. If you hear that warning today, do not harden your heart. Whether we claim to know Christ or not, we should put no confidence in our own righteousness, but find refuge in the Son by faith alone. That's Jesus' message that's greater than the angels. Jesus' inheritance as Son also proves God's faithfulness to His promises. So the quotation from Samuel, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Do you remember back when David aspired, the King David, the King of Israel, he aspired to build a house for God. And the Lord actually came back and responded with a promise instead. He said that the scepter would never depart from David's line and that his offspring would arise to rule God's people forever. And that Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, this affirmed his divine sonship to God. It completed his work of redemption. So it's not that Jesus wasn't already the Son of God. I mean, he existed forever in the Trinity in perfect fellowship with the Father, uh, claiming that status, owning that status. But Jesus' Jesus' work of salvation, when he accomplished it in his human body, he arose and ascended to heaven and was coronated as king to put an exclamation point on his status as son, as ruler of the universe. So his crowning bore witness to God's faithfulness to his word to King David. God's steadfast and Covenantal love cannot be broken. And so it's cause for us, his people, to celebrate. Jesus carries the banner of his righteousness, of God's righteousness and justice in his death and resurrection. And so he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of the submission of all creation. Even holy angels worship him 
says from verse 6 in our passage, a quotation from Psalm 97, let all God's angels worship him. We heard this in our, we, we heard Psalm 97 in our uh, call to worship this morning that Dave read, and then we saw the example of angels worshiping the Son from our assurance of pardon in Luke, where glory to God in the highest, they praised the Son. Jesus' supreme status demands our heightened affections. That's how we should think and apply this concept. So think about what most excites you. If you're a kid, think about what most gets you excited. If you're a Christian, does salvation in Christ excite you the most? Where are your emotions when you consider the forgiveness of your sins. When you think about the promised escape from wrath to come. Or even more simply than that, more basic, how does the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of God move you to praise? If I'm honest, I, I know I'm convicted by this. So maybe some days, like me, other things Crowd out your affections for Jesus. Maybe it's a promotion at work that energizes you. Or maybe it's the kindness of a faithful friend that moves you the most. Perhaps it's winning your soccer game that excites you. Or it's enjoying a delicious meal. Maybe it's basking in your child's accomplishments. Or in the doting love of your spouse. Or maybe even you find the most pleasure in your own obedience to the Lord, and that raises your affections. But beloved, all of these things are good, and they represent good reasons to find joy, but if we hold these things as ultimate to drive our happiness, they become idols which crowd out our due worship to the Son who rules in authority. And so if we're all honest, we experience days, we experience often lacking affection for the Lord. In our humanity, our hearts tend to become dull to heavenly things. So we should ask the Lord's help daily to create in our hearts, raise affections for Jesus above all other distractions from the world. We should cultivate reminders of what he did for us that we might worship him for what he's do, do, Lord, may you cause us to see in your word your beauty and, and goodness and holiness that we might worship in spirit and truth. Beloved, we can't work this up in our own righteousness. May God grant us faith to see and appreciate him, to see Jesus for the perfection of who he truly is, because he's the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He reigns from the depths of our hearts and the, and the basement of our affections to the earth's highest peaks. He's the king from the microscopic to the intergalactic. His authority is so high that he commands that even aspects of his own creation are the tools of his will, even skies, even clouds, and even angels. As our passage 
tells us in verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote from Psalm 97. The point is this, beloved, that Jesus is God, so holy in nature, so perfect in his judgments, so loving righteousness and hating evil with such heightened glory that his divine authority compels even the worship of the most glorious angels in his creation. And so how much more then does it demand our praise and our submission? So this is why we can trust that the revelation of, the, of salvation through Christ is trustworthy and true because he supersedes all things. Look down with me again at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. I kept reading down to verse 12. These quotations are from Psalm 45 and from Psalm 102. They foot stomp once again the nature and the character and the ruling authority and the creative sustaining power that Jesus possesses over all of the cosmos. In verse 9, we saw that God declares, therefore God, your God. It's a declaration and an affirmation from the Psalms, from the Old Testament, that there is another person of God, the Son, who is equal in divinity to the Father. So as we head closer to what the, the culmination, what the bottom line of the Hebrews writer's argument is when we get to chapter 2, we see that Jesus is, has equality with God, but that's not all. The writer intends for us to continue to feel the building warning that's about to come when he announces the son's command in chapter 2. He's not only building a case, but he's cultivating fear of disobedience to Jesus' words. Just as Jesus remains the same, the truth of his word remains forever. Just as his years are eternal, so are the results of how we respond to his warnings. So even if the majesty of the heavens and the expanse of the universe will perish and roll up under his robe, how much more if we perish, will we perish if we fail to heed the word of the Lord? Here again, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The writer references Psalm 110 here, and it accentuates sort of the closing evidence before he gives the command in chapter 2. 
This is why we should listen to Jesus, even more reliable in revelation than what came from angels. It is not from angels which, with, with which uh, God, the Father, grants final judgment. It is not fr- to angels that his enemies, God's enemies, will come under feet. It's not to angels that God rests equal authority with himself. No, it's Jesus the Son that has all of those attributes. He's the divine priest king. He'll rule in the midst of his enemies. And he accomplished purification, as we saw in verses 1 through 4, for the sins of his people. We will offer ourselves freely on the day of his power, but he will execute judgment against the nations because he took on human flesh. And the Lord elevated his human nature as ruler of the universe, greater than the angels because of his resurrection from the dead. This is all Jesus' resume, and it is loaded. These are the divine credentials of the Holy One that shares the same, nation of, the same nature of God. So why should we listen to the declaration of the Son? It's because his supremacy over all things rules through the work of his mercy. It's because he reflects the glory of God as righteous judge. It's because he possesses infinite power to create and destroy. And it's because he demands true worship by faith alone, by virtue of his completed work of purification for sinners. On the other hand, angels are merely his less glorious servants. They're called to minister to us, to care for God's people who who trust in Christ by faith and will inherit salvation. I hope you're starting to see the point of the argument. It's that Jesus' superior greatness compels us to embrace salvation by faith that comes in the revelation of Christ. This salvation is greater than the law that the angels declared. The law only exposes our inadequacy before God and leaves us looking for a rescuer. Jesus not the angels, secures for us salvation from his wrath by his righteousness that we could never match. So we come to our second point, the Son's command. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 again. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness in signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The command here is pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. If the law was reliable, or if the law was reliable, how much more should we trust this greater revelation? So remember that Pastor Scott taught us last week about the context of the letter that this predominantly Jewish church had heard the gospel of salvation apart from works by faith alone in Christ, but now 
He's writing because they're hearing from false teachers that true worship can only be accomplished by going back to the sacrifices and going back to obedience to the law for righteousness. And so they're, they're tempted to drift away. The law doesn't ultimately teach salvation through our own righteousness. It points us to a Savior. But now that Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the purpose of the, where the law was pointing, it's pointless to go back to the preview. We should put our confidence in righteousness that's outside of ourselves, that's accomplished by God himself. And the writer in giving us this command is using the stick more than the carrot in this passage. And so he's warning us against falling into the same temptation. Lest we drift away from what we heard, for how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So do you see that? Do not drift away. Do not neglect our great salvation. So what does this warning show us? It acknowledges that the reality of falling away, of abandoning the gospel of salvation through Christ and his righteousness, that doesn't happen overnight. People who forsake Jesus don't simply decide one day to stop believing. It usually is a progressive slide away from the truth. But what does that drift look like? like? Well, it's often characterized by slow and steady compromises about truth and about various topics of disobedience. But I'd suggest that all of those find their root in the pursuit of self-righteousness. Again, we're going to footstomp every day and all day that Jesus keeps the, one, the ones that he saves. But we are those who persevere to the end. Those who are truly in Christ will not fall away. But the warning is to remind us and to encourage us to persevere against temptations to find our righteousness in anything other than Christ. Don't drift away into trying to justify ourselves by works and in doing so, disobey the gospel of grace. Sliding into self-righteousness roots all disobedience to the gospel because it ends up placing us in one of two ditches. So on the one hand, we try really, really hard to obey in our own strength, and we think that we don't need God's help to please Him because we develop the idea that we can become right in our own eyes. That would be the pride side of the ditch. The other end is that we rightly, comp uh, we rightly comprehend that God's standard is impossible to fulfill by our own works, so that instead we enter despair, we throw in the towel, and we look for satisfaction in disobedience to his word. So in short, self-righteousness is the most potent poison that tempts us to set us adrift away from his grace and enjoying his grace. So what's terrifying is that it happens gradually without many people noticing that its effects 
noticing it's happening, noticing its effects. We must diligently pay close attention to what we have heard, the gospel of salvation apart from works. So let us consider a number of legalistic temptations that we might be tempted by or circumstances that might distract us from the great salvation. The truth is that our hearts can craft any number of idols that look to our own self-righteousness out of anything, out of even good things. So we must beware of reading the Bible's commands without first considering the context that of where we find our righteousness first. All of the commands in the New Testament, all of them are to be obeyed in response to what Jesus has done in Christ. He completed our righteousness for us. Even the law itself, God gave to his people Israel after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. The law taught them how to live as a response to live holy, thanking God for the great salvation that they experienced. So we should beware of obedience that's not rooted first in a thankful heart for what Jesus has done apart from works. It's not that we should disobey the Lord. We should never disobey Jesus. But we should pray all along that the Lord would remind us of the cost that he paid to secure our salvation, that we, he would purify our motives, that we would look increasingly like Jesus in our obedience because of what he has done, putting our confidence in his righteousness. We're never going to be perfect in this area, but, but this is the hope. This is how we persevere. We need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and to others that the Lord might fan into flame this kind of disobedience with a thankful heart. And so that's why grumbling is so detestable to the Lord, beloved. The constant complaining drifts our hearts to hold focus on temporary circumstances, away from all of the thankful reminders of our great salvation. So let us not only meditate on the gospel through Bible reflection and fellowship, we should do those things, but let us also intentionally try to count ways the Lord is being merciful to us Today, if you're in the midst of a trial, how is the Lord being merciful today? If we remember his grace, it'll protect us against the temptation to slide into self-righteousness. Remember, God only relates to his people, those who's he, whom he's bought by his blood. He only relates to them in mercy because Jesus took our punishment in full. So when troubles and uncertainties and trials come, sometimes we can be tempted to start counting all of those as piling up. And, that the, and we start to think that somehow those are occurring apart from the mercy of God. When we focus on our circumstances, instead of the grace of Christ, it tempts us to blame God and to provision bitterness. It's, in, it's really dangerous when we forget the grace of God and we, and we wane in our affections for enjoying that grace. So recently in our family, Mel had a health scare, needed surgery. She's fine now, praise God. But this was our temptation in the moment. 
God's word instead reminds us to count instances of his grace as he walks us through our trials. We should not only look at his mercy looking forward to the end when he delivers us from the trial, to the end when we can look back at all the ways that he purified us through the trial. That's, that's good, and we should do that. But we should also pay closer attention to what we have heard in the midst of our suffering, that when we consider the ways the Lord relates to us in mercy, we can take hope today because he ordains our trials for our good. We need to help each other in this, beloved. And we shouldn't live on a spiritual island. God's word corrects our vision to remind us to continue in this great salvation by faith when we study his promises together and when we hold each other accountable. We don't, we don't say these things. We don't, we don't create community groups and Bible studies and just to do them. Like, this is the purpose that we might remind each other and protect each other, ultimately God's protection, reminding each other of the grace that he poured out for us that we wouldn't slip into self-righteousness and drifting. There's so many ways that we can drift away from the great salvation that is found in Christ in our practice. One way is when we relate to each other according to our own righteousness instead of by the grace and the righteousness of Christ poured out for believers. So if in our marriages and in our friendships we forget to regard one another according to Jesus' righteousness, our love can grow cold. We can start to withhold forgiveness and set a standard of our own righteousness that we expect others to adhere to. And we, as a result, we often fail to compassionately bear with one another. And that comes from drinking from the grace of Christ that we might relate to each other with the mercy of God that he's shown uh, towards us first. We should also be aware and be wary of measuring spiritual progress too often. Sometimes it's helpful to take a look at our lives and to praise God for the ways that he's growing us. But we shouldn't do that too often. Because if we look at ourselves too much, we're not looking at Christ. And if we, like my friend Phil, if we, if we estimate our growth to be sort of not up to what we're expecting, it might tempt us to despair. To be, or on the other end, to become puffed up. In that instance, our pride comes in and we're prone to judge others or to create laws of our own making. If we slip into the despair ditch of that, slow growth often locks our minds into a sort of morbid self-focus, and it crowds out the thoughts of the Lord and His provision, and it, it causes the, it steepens the ramp towards drifting. And that's what happened to my friend Phil. We should never put our trust in the fruit that God is growing in us. We should never put our trust in the fruit that God is growing in us. We should only build our confidence in the righteousness of the one who accomplished it for us. 
Let us also hold each other accountable, not to make good things ultimate things. Because of our fallen, self-righteous hearts, it's so easy to count our own obedience as something to satisfy our own consciences. And I can think of two areas for me that that's a particular temptation. First is with prayer. I'm often tempted to count the quantity of time that I pray as the quality of prayer, of my prayer life. And it just creates sort of a box-checking mentality where I'm counting prayer as a totem of my own righteousness to soothe my own conscience. And what it does is it quenches true communion with the Lord. The second temptation comes in evangelism. How often are we tempted to legalistically count faithfulness to sharing the gospel to others that the Lord provides for us um, to, to overcome our fear? How often are we tempted to count those as measures of our own righteousness? Instead, we should, should view people the way that God views them as sinners in need, need of a Savior, in desperate need of the great salvation which is revealed in Christ. So we constantly need to return to the well of His mercy to protect us from self-righteousness and from going adrift. So the good news, as we've said so many times already, is that the Lord promises to persevere His people to the end. The means through which we do it is through everything and many more other applications that we've talked about. So let us hear the warning. And don't neglect the great salvation found in Christ. Let's Press on helping each other to look to Christ alone for righteousness all the more. We should pray that he would protect us from the poison of overindulgent self-reflection and keep our eyes fixed on the grace of Christ. So finally, our last and shortest point, the message confirmed. The simple answer is that the evidence is produced in the church. It's shown through God's people. Let's look one more time at uh, verses in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. We've already thought much about the about who revealed the great salvation. Of course, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke it after his resurrection to many eyewitnesses, and he charged us to go to the ends of the earth to declare that message. He declared it in power and victory over his death, which, is, which surpasses all of the angels, and we get to become his witnesses. After Jesus ascended, the message of the gospel preached by the apostles and through many millennia and over vast geography, it reached us in Bedford, Massachusetts, or wherever you were when you got saved and whenever you heard it. When the apostles first preached the great salvation, God authenticated it with supernatural miracles, healing gifts and gifts of tongues and people raised from the dead and many others. You can read about those in the book of Acts. But even greater than those, even greater than that, the greatest miracle that confirms our king's message is that 
we're changed in our hearts. We were brought to repent of our sins and were conformed to the image of Christ. When we turn from self-righteousness, God saves us through his Holy Spirit's power. And this attests the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit then works in us that we would obey his message. So we are changed to love the Lord and to hate sin. And this is the greatest and most miraculous confirmation and evidence of the greatness of the message that Christ proclaimed. So, brothers and sisters, let us help one another to heaven. Help us to help each other so that we do not neglect the gospel. We, are, we who are bought by the blood of Christ should hear the warning and it should cause us to press on by faith alone all the more with more vigor not to drift away. Not that we persevere in our own strength. We persevere in the strength of the Lord, but, but hear the warning and look to Jesus. The Lord has equipped us and empowered us by his spirit to accomplish this. He has given his people today spiritual gifts, as it says in our text. There are preaching and teaching gifts, compassion and mercy, and patience and exhortation, and encouragement and love and service and hospitality, wisdom and discernment, and so many more that are gifts of the Holy Spirit for his people these are our weapons for service that we might fight to help each other not drift away. God grants us this diversely to show the magnitude of his grace that in many ways we might remind each other of the righteousness of Christ. And these gifts are indispensable to the church. It's because they help us persevere in faith. And they also declare to the world the worthiness of Jesus who declares a better, the best message. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us even now that the seeds of faith planted might be stolen away by the evil one and that you would produce righteousness in us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we look to Christ and his righteousness on our behalf. We pray that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we'll uh, close our time together by singing together of the Lord's amazing grace. Um, let's encourage one another and exhort one another to remember his grace as the, the thing that saves and, and not our own righteousness. So please, or works of